Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Another week, and another biblical passage awaits us to explore. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Last week, we started out by talking about Opposite Day, which is coming up in January. Well, that same theme could apply to our next passage of Scripture, which is found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It is immediately following the parable of the unjust judge, which we looked at last week. And here we'll see Jesus is going to break into a new parable, only this time he has a little bit of a different intended audience. So the audience is going to shift, and the new story also has the element of opposites, though. And it's going to go against the expected grain of our thinking. This story is going to start out as a typical story with a good guy and a typical bad guy. But it's not going to finish according to projected expectations. In fact, just the opposite. How can it be that the good guy finishes poorly and the bad guy finishes great? What is Jesus' problem here? Why is he always confusing us with this kind of thing? I mean, what gives? We see the world with our point of view. Obviously, we read the Bible and we believe Jesus. So why so many surprises? I mean, why don't we get it all the time? What what could be the problem? For example... If we lived, let's put ourselves back, we're living in Palestine, Israel, uh, 30 AD. We're right mixed in the culture. We're Jews, we're part of the Jewish culture, and we're living in that time with that understanding. And someone comes and tells you about a woman who goes to a well at noon to get water. (laughs) Outcast, she doesn't want to see anyone. Then you might hear she was been married five times. And we just think instantly, whoa, what a nasty woman, loser. Then we hear about a woman who was taken in adultery, caught in the very act, and brought to the temple. And and we think, what a woman, what kind of woman is that? Immoral, loser, she should die. They are to be stoned to death. Then we hear about a rich young ruler. My, how he was quite successful and quite wealthy and very impressive, and he kept the law. And Ooh, what a wonderful young man. We're impressed. He's a good guy. Then we hear about Zacchaeus, and he's a he's a tax collector and a short little guy. And he's obviously as a tax collector, he's a traitor and he's greedy and he's corrupt. He's a horrible person. Ugh. And then we hear about this young teenage girl in Nazareth who's betrothed to be married, but she's now discovered to be pregnant. Oh, that's a lot of whispers and rumors. What an immoral young woman she is. Shameful. Need to put her away somewhere. Or we hear about an older woman, Elizabeth, who has been almost past her childbearing years and she's barren and hasn't had a child. And clearly we think there's a woman who's cursed by God, out of favor, not having children, loser. And then we often will hear about the Pharisees, right? Oh, yes, many of the Pharisees, they are scholars, they're law keepers, they're holy, they're good, they're impressive. 
So see, we have quick opinions and judgments of all these different individuals as we live in that time frame, putting ourselves in shoes there. It would be sincere, quite, we would be sincere, sincere rather, quite sure that we are right, comfortable with our views and our opinions, and we're in good company with one another and others. We all see it this way. We see the good guys, we see the bad guys, and all, not only that, but we can be very harsh with the bad guys. And we would be totally wrong far from the real reality. And all of those stories, we see what God was going to say there. In every story, he's got a different take and opinion. His truth is what is going to carry the day. So yes, we were sincere, but we were completely missing the truth. And what do we do about that? We'd be totally wrong. We would be comfortable with our views, but we would be completely missing it, applying it all wrong, and even so, we'd be arrogant about our, ourselves. I'm reminded in 1 Samuel 16 where we're reminded that the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This means we can gain tremendous insight and otherworldly wisdom from the Word of God as we look at life around us. Oh, nice. That's an advantage. Therefore, we don't have to be wrong all the time as we look at others, as His Word will enable us. Now, Luke chapter 18, the parable starts in verse 9 this way. Also, He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So the word also tells us we're just carrying on the same scene. And the scene that we look at is the scene where uh, the Pharisees actually back in chapter 17 asked Jesus about the kingdom. He gave them a short answer, but then he spent the rest of chapter 17 giving the disciples a more lengthy answer. Then he gave the disciples a parable in chapter 18 verses 1 through 9, 8, which we looked at last week regarding the unjust judge. And now we see also, and we see the audience shifts, he's speaking to some who trusted in themselves. Because the Pharisees are still around, and he's going to include a Pharisee, so he's opening this up. He was speaking to the disciples with the unjust judge, but now he's speaking with the Pharisees in mind again. So we see the problem. He says there are some, and there's two things we need to note. Uh, one is they do two things. They trust in themselves for righteousness. They look to themselves and go, yes, I am maintaining God's standards. I am meeting the expectations. And they're convinced. And they are putting their confidence, is what trust means, being convinced. And they're trusting in themselves. So they look at themselves and say, my, how righteous. I am indeed all that in a bag of chips. They trust that they're righteous, and their righteousness is from themselves. They secondly, though, despise others whom they assume then to be unrighteous. And this is a very condescending and superior attitude. I'm better than you. It's a strong word, and the idea is to treat with scorn. They have no merit. Now, this kind of comparison is necessary. If we're going to uphold a really high view of ourselves, we need to bring others down. So that gap is more impressive. I'm, I am superior to do. You're not as good as me. So I have to keep pointing out your faults so that sticks. Now, we seem good as a people, as a society, to make people feel this way, to make people feel inferior, especially in our uh, you know, social media day in the 21st century. We're really good at running them down. You know, you're not very attractive. You're kind of ugly. You know, you're poor. You're not well-educated. You just came from a 
bad school. Your house is inferior. You don't live in the right zip code. In fact, you said something 15 years ago that today is not politically correct. So we're going to chew you up and spit you out. You're a minority. You're handicapped or you're fat or you're a Karen and you're just sheeple and you don't matter. So these are the kind of things that we really think and occupy in our minds. People are not good enough. They don't compare well enough. So amazingly, with this propensity we have, we know also that Jesus tells us, don't do that. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, one of the most frequently under people know the, this verse almost uh, more than any others. Judge not that you be not judged, Jesus says. In chapter 7, verse 1. Well, we all know this prohibition isn't against making discerning evaluations. Obviously, we have to discern and to make observations and see things. Or How would we do verse 6 a few verses later when Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine? Well, how are we going to do that? So we have to make discerning judgments. So what is it that Jesus is saying then here? The idea in Matthew 7, 1 is that judge is a very critical and harsh, condemning one. And that's what we even see in our parable in Luke 18. We see that they looked down, they despised others. So you look down on them and condemn them and write them off. And that's the kind of judging Jesus is saying, don't do. You know, this person disagrees with my beliefs and they don't agree with my politics and they don't share my opinions. So they're evil and unfit for dialogue. I can dismiss them out of hand. I have no need to hear them, listen to them, or consider them. Nope, they are one of those or whatever. And we are judge and jury. We determine their worth and declare harsh judgment. And Jesus said very simply, hey, don't do this. Don't disdain others, not anyone and not ever. And the reason is because he goes on with a really almost comical um uh, illustration. He says, when you look at this, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and don't consider this plank or this big long log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, there's this huge plank in your own eye. <laughs> Hypocrite, you need to first remove the plank from your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, we don't see clearly, and that's what he's saying here. You should not be judging others because not only will they then judge you, but bigger than that is you're not good at it. <laughs> We're not good at it at all. We got this big, long beam. We don't see clearly. We aren't accurate. Think of all those examples I gave earlier. We're just wrong almost all the time. And yet that's what we as believers, as Christians, we often tend to do. <laughs> and, we're, and we're then perhaps who this parable is, a, is addressed to. Maybe that's addressed to us. You know, there were a lot of Pharisees back then in that culture, and many of the Jews, they sat under those Pharisees. So a lot of these people sitting in synagogues practicing Judaism, um, and they were telling them all about the Pharisee life as the Jewish norm. And, and now as we apply this today, we're in the church age, and we know all these applications cross over. We know there's Pharisees today, the equivalent of that in our church age. Where are they? I mean, why do we think that 90, 95% of us would never be Pharisees? It's only a small little mi minority somewhere. Wouldn't it be the same today as back then? There's lots of them. Well, we do sure like to judge, and we're definitely not good at it, and we get it wrong mostly, and we don't see things clearly like God sees them. And so 
We need to take that into account. Romans 14.4 gives us another reason why it's not good for us to judge. Here, Paul is talking and he says, Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So notice he says, don't judge because you know what? You don't have the authority to do it. That person doesn't answer to you. They're accountable to the Lord. And at the end of it, there's optimism. And not only that, but God is able to make them stand. So maybe there's ability we can put hope and trust that God is able to bring about changes as needed. And he's on top of it with his people. So we're not to judge. Why? Because we're not good at it. We don't see clearly. We're biased. We're, we're really just wrong most of the time. And secondly, we don't have authority to do it. So now we get to our story uh, and, and the parable story in Luke 18, and we pick it up now after seeing who it's intended toward, uh, to those who tend to despise others and be self-righteous. And now we see the story beginning in verse 10. Two men, Jesus says, went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So let's just, you know, the Pharisees are the righteous leaders. Let's just say one, the good guy. And the other, the tax collector, well, obviously, he's the bad guy. These were the ones who were despised by the Jews and considered as traitors and greedy and corrupt. So we have a real contrast, the holy good guy strolling up and the lowly tax collector, loser, sinner. And what happens when they get into the temple? Verse 11, Jesus says, we'll start with the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So the prayer of the Pharisee, we note that he stood. He stood in such a way that he'd be noticed, as Pharisees were wont to do. And he prayed out loud, but his prayer was really only as he prayed with himself. <laughs> now, what could he have prayed for? Obviously, he could have prayed in a worshipful form, praising God, praising God for his many attributes and his faithfulness to Israel and his promises. Or he could have been praying for wisdom as a leader and teacher of the people to teach and to understand the scriptures and to be a learner. He could have prayed for forgiveness and cleansing in his life. But what did he pray for? Well, the prayer was all about himself. And he's basically reading his spiritual resume to the Lord. And it's all based in comparison to others. I thank you, God, that I am so good. And I do so much good. And I'm better than others, like adulterers and extortioners and <laughs> this tax collector. In fact, this prayer is another kind of like soliloquy. We've seen a lot of these in these Lucan parables. And the direction of the prayer, well, God isn't involved. It's just to himself. You know, Jesus warned us in Matthew 6, 5, warned the Jews then, he said, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Well, his prayer is, I thank God that I'm not like other men. And I'm literally, what he means is he's comparing himself to the other men, other people. Notice the word other. And he pointed out that the sins of others, he just makes us list. Look what they do. And then he exalted himself upward as he sees as himself as one who really has no need. He's pretty much arrived. And his 
confidence is based on his religious activities. And he says, I thank you, as he then mentions God and runs off five statements about himself. So he enjoys talking about himself, turning any circumstance he can into being about him. You know, it reminds me of the cartoon joke I saw once of a couple on a first date and the guy's going on and on about himself. And he says, well, enough about me. Let's talk about you. So what do you think about me? Great. The Old Testament law was required a fasting um, once a year for the Day of Atonement and maybe sporadically a few other places, but he fasts twice a week, way beyond what is expected, and that's amazing. So he assumes his righteous standing before God. He doesn't make any requests. His prayer is really just a boast. Now, this is an extreme case of self-righteousness, right? I mean, these are the Pharisees. I mean, what does that have to do with anything now? Well, let's be careful that we don't get all down on the Pharisees and see just them as some extreme case of this arrogance. You know, I have a sneaking suspicion this happens in our lives way more than we think, even by you and I. You know, maybe you've had some success. Maybe you've had some success on your job or uh, in an, an athletic endeavor, or maybe it's a good talent or music you have or an attractiveness you have or whatever. And we take credit for that often, don't we? I'm so thankful that I'm having this or that. And we forget to give that to the Lord and give him credit. We think we're something and behind it, and we take maybe this pharisaical view. You can hear it sometimes when we give people give testimonies. Sometimes I, I smile when I hear certain testimonies of their life and how they came to know Christ, but sometimes they'll talk about this dark past and they were so bad and they were so wicked and they did this and they did that and they were depraved, but then they met Jesus and now, oh, I have it all together. I don't do this. I don't do that. I'm much just living wonderfully. And you hear that self in there, just kind of like the Pharisee. Um, you can hear it in our churches sometimes. We think we can say to each other, oh, look at those other churches. They're not teaching clearly. They're wrong about this, and they got this wrong, and they got that wrong. I thank you that we are not as other churches are, that we're above them, that we have pure doctrine. I said, and, that, and sometimes this can be said, unfortunately, without a tear in the eye or any sorrow in the heart about why is it this way? How did it get that way? And a compassion for them. We can have a spiritual superiority. I thank you that I'm not like all these other ignorant people. And uh, in doing that, I thank you that I know the book of Revelation and the symbolism in there, and they don't. Uh, I thank God we don't have heathen devil music in our church like those other awful places. Our teaching is better. Our music is better. Our worship style is better. Our activities are better. Ah, yeah. So, or maybe there's a social issue of our day. I just, just wait until God deals with those lowlifes that are doing this or that. And we may be sending a message to those outside of God's grace that Jesus is on our side and he hates you. We can lose Romans 14.4 the idea of that not to judge another servant, but also how it ends with, and God is able to make them stand. Somehow we might lose that, that sense of hope or that God's at work here. And even though we can make observations and see some things aren't right or there's issues or problems, we don't have the authority to be discerning, to just cast them aside or to be all down on them and hate on them. But we can have hope that God can make them stand. We can hear it in our current day, even on COVID issues, as thinking of a current event. I mean, when we feel like demanding our rights as citizens in ways that make us look like independent cowboys, it might make Christ's love sound mean-spirited toward others. 
It is good to pause and remember, hey, we're aliens and strangers in foreign territory here on earth. And one day we'll return and we'll be with Jesus, the King of Kings, we'll live in total righteousness and justice. But until then, we're ambassadors here. And we're to point to the fact that you can be reconciled and that God loves you and there's a message of the gospel and there's love and there's reconciliation. Grace rescues. And so we can be rejoicing in that and presenting that instead of maybe conspiracies or conspiracy theories or even fear. In fact, who is behind the conspiracy theories? Sometimes we have to ask. I mean, the government? Well, that's school teachers and highway workers and police officers and firemen and government office workers and various inspectors and postal workers and building maintenance people and on and on we could go. Are they evil? See, all this rhetoric can sound fearful and mean. And is that what you think of when you think of Jesus? Now, we can even see this mentality with uh, cause-orientated crusaders, you know, like, I'm a good person because I take the bus or I ride the bike, I recycle, I use cloth bags and I reuse all my rainwater, and I have a low-carbon footprint. See, we have our causes and then we can come very judgmental within our causes. Leo Tolstoy once said, I have not yet met a single man who is morally as good as I. Oh, I thought, pray for his wife. We think like this, but we don't write it down. We don't make it obvious. We're not going to tweet about our superiority, but subtly do we not have it. Not about the people you work with, right? Boy, I'm glad I work here. This place would fall apart if it wasn't for me. It's a good thing I'm here. And my boss or my supervisor, oh, I'm thank God I'm not like him or her. I have a life outside of here. Or maybe when you're driving in traffic, am I the one person on the road who is not stupid and who actually knows how to drive? And thoughts and words come out of us, surprise even ourselves at times. Losers! And you wish really bad things would happen to them. <laughs> So let's be careful to dismiss this parable as just, and this Pharisee as just something really extreme and out there and not realistic. It's got a, a little bit of us in there, I think. In fact, a lot more than we want to admit. You know, when we're self-righteous, we rarely, we're rarely little in our own eyes. And it's really hard to lessen ourselves to have Christ be, to, have, to great in Christ as he increases and we decrease. In fact, we can hardly tolerate it sometimes at being outshined by someone we become a rage machine when we're criticized or falsely accused, even when we're driving and someone takes this to, um, uh, an unjust turn at the stop sign. Ugh! And we do love the praise of men. And what's amazing is the Pharisees, they figured out a way to do all of this and to think like this openly, brazenly, and everyone looks up to them and they call it good and they walk in it. <laughs> John 12, 43, Jesus said, For they, the Pharisees, love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So I think there's a little bit of that Pharisee, maybe even way more than we realize, in all of us. And so that might cause application here in this parable to be hitting closer to home. But one thing we notice is there's, that's lacking here. There's no compassion. Can God judge? Uh, can, someone, can you judge someone, rather, and be harsh and critical and then love them? At the same time, no, you can't do both at the same time, one or the other. Now, God, we know he's holy, he's just, he's perfect, and he's already judged all sin. He's already taken all of this wrong thought and pride and arrogance and actions, and he put it at the cross where Jesus took your sin and your penalty, and out of love, 
He did that for you and I. Love is powerful. Love, this is a powerful love that God has that can forgive all of our sin without condemning you, without writing you off, without the harsh tone or the cancel culture. Because of Jesus, there's love and there's grace. Love is supernatural. In fact, it's a fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, 1 through 3, something very important. He says, Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and although I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. A clanging cymbal, bang, 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 over and over. Could it be more clear? How do you and I respond to people? We judge them or love them? When there's a lack of love, then that lack of love cancels out all the good intentions. Talk about cancel culture. Paul says, then I am nothing. A lack of love means we will judge others with a big beam, getting it all wrong, not even getting it right, and lacking compassion. A lack of love, we just write people off, whole groups even. People we would love to see God wipe out rather than win over. And we value being right more than exhibiting love. And then we just start clanging symbols. And some might say that, well, tough love, we have to give the truth and speak the truth in love and tear them down and point out their unworthiness and be right. But I'm reading here about clanging symbols, about nothing and things that profit nothing. In other words, yes, let's have discernment. Let's make observations. Let's know the truth, but also insert love into our thinking. God so loved the world, he judged the world in Christ. He had resolved the sin issue for everyone, all of the wrongs. And now he can make us stand by faith in Christ who loved us and died for us. So there is hope in love, but there's only anger and frustration and judging and condemning. Well, the contrast now is in verse 13 of our story where we read, as Jesus now says in verse 13, the tax collector, after we see the Pharisee's prayer, the tax collector was standing afar off, and he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He stood afar off. He has humility written all over him, and he quickly acknowledges, be merciful to me, literally, the sinner. He didn't brag on his sin. He could have uh, with the other side of the coin, kind of with reverse pride, right? Hey, Lord, look, I don't make phony long prayers in the temple. I'm unjust and an extortionist. I am so immoral, but at least I'm honest about it. And I, Lord, don't pretend and be a, hip be a hypocrite. He could have done that, but he doesn't. And you know, the Lord, and therefore and, and Jesus at that time and the church in our time, is to be relevant to sinners. People come and they find hope and they find love and they find grace there. They come because they want to find the Lord there. That, that addiction can be broken. That marriage failure can be repaired. That abuse can be healed by Jesus. And this brokenness before God, a contrite heart, is what he's looking for, what he works with. He's not looking down on you with disdain like the religious people. He's not mean. In fact, he, this, this, uh, this, this, um, tax collector knows that in some sense he's trusting in that he's humbling himself before the lord and appealing to mercy 
beating his chest as a sign of contrition, as that's what he was doing. And he's showing great emotion. You know, when it comes to the Lord, all you need is nothing. All you need is need. And that's where the Lord steps in. Jesus is the man for others, and he is available for any nobody that he comes across. Well, he knows his unrighteous standing, this tax collector does, and he appeals for mercy. So let's note something about this mercy and the, the, the significant here. He says, be merciful to me. Now, there's a Hebrew word that is, uh, that there's a concept within the Hebrew Bible of the mercy seat. I want you to think for a minute of the, the Lost Ark, the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, if you've seen that, but the Ark of the Covenant, which was like this box, um, and on, on, they were to build it, and inside that box there was a pot of manna, there was part of the Ten Commandment stones and Aaron's rod that buds, and it was all symbolic of God's power and his leading them and the people. And they had two angels built up on this box that were guarding the center of it, and on the top of the box was called the mercy seat. And it was on the mercy seat where the high priest once a year would sprinkle blood from the sacrificial innocent lamb, uh, lamb and that would be a covering of the sins of the people, etc. Now, Exodus 25, verses 18 through 22, we won't read it all, but I just want you to know that that term mercy street seat is found five times. Mercy seat, mercy seat, mercy seat. And what God is emphasizing there is this is where I will meet you. In fact, he says that in uh, verse 22, there I will meet you when the priest comes to this mercy seat and sprinkles the blood there. So this was a place where God would meet his people. This was a physical place where there would be, the access to God was to be found. Leviticus 16, 14 through 15, um, there are the instructions for the priest how to go about, and four times he mentions Five times he mentions blood, putting the blood on the mercy seat, and four times mercy seat is found again. And every time that word is found, mercy seat, it's the Greek word elasterion. It's a Hebrew word, but in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of it, where we can then make um, comparisons into the New Testament, is elasterion. That's the word, mercy seat, mercy seat. And I want you to see this in Romans chapter 3, as we now look at ourselves in the New Testament, verse 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul says. Being justified, we can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, Jesus, God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. In other words, it is through Christ that God, he set Jesus forth as a propitiation by his blood. And that word propitiation in Romans 3.25 is the Greek word elasterion, the exact same word for the mercy seat. That is where, at the cross, at Calvary, where the blood of Christ is shed, that's the mercy seat. That's where God will meet you. That's where God will meet me. That's the place of access. That's where you find life and being born again in a relationship with him. So that word is used again in 1 John 2, 2, where it says, Jesus, he himself is the propitiation. It's helasmos there, very uh, same idea. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the satisfactory payment Jesus himself secured that for you and I. So this is the basis for our justification. 
Be merciful to me, a sinner. Mercy, the mercy seat. This tax collector was appealing to God's mercy. He knew something about these Old Testament stories and the mercy seat, etc. He's not going to make a claim on a spiritual resume. We are justified on the resume of Jesus Christ and on the blood of Jesus Christ and on the mercy seat principle there. We come to God not on our own works. That is anything, nothing to do within ourselves. We come on the basis of God's provision for us by grace. That's why Ephesians 2.8-9 says, By grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that's how we're justified, by grace. And the tax collector knew just enough of this. So what's the point of it all? The end of uh, the parable in Luke 18.14, Jesus concludes and says, I tell you, this man, now he's talking about the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For who everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the two men went up to the temple to pray, and the two men leave the temple. And the first one, as the tax collector is first, the order is reversed from when they went up, he leaves justified. He's declared righteous. And his humility before God and his confidence in God's mercy and the provision of the blood there, he is justified and finds that. Grace is the solution. It puts us all in the same canoe, no matter who we are. We're all in the same boat, sinking, separated from God. But God reaches out and will save any and every one of us if we put our faith in Christ and meet him at the mercy seat of Calvary. It is hard to look down on others. And be judgmental when you're sitting at the foot of the cross looking up. You see, humility oozes out grace. It goes hand in hand with grace. The Pharisee, he departs unchanged. Though Jesus said, uh, he, the first man, he's justified rather than the other. He's just called now the other. Remember his prayer, I'm so glad I'm not like the others? Jesus makes a point to say, you are the other. And so we see opposites again. The good guy doesn't end up good. The bad guy, he's justified by grace. Flip-flop, opposites. The judgment and opinion of the crowd and our natural instincts is all wrong again. So let's remember a few things here as we wrap this up. God sees the heart, not the external things outward. He sees the heart, and he's looking for sincerity there. And if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. If you humble yourself, though, in the end, you will be exalted. That's how God works. He honors humility. Humility is connected to grace. And finally, remember this. Before God, you and I, we are not better than anybody else. You're not better than anyone. God so loves the world, everyone. And if you are saved, if we're children of God, just remember, we have the privilege of knowing truth, of learning, of having the Spirit within us. What an amazing thing. This is all by grace. And we're loved with a wild compassion by the Father. And may this love motivate us and compel us to look at others as God does, to not look down on them, but to even have hope that God can make them stand. Whether if they're unsaved, they get saved, or if they're saved, whatever it is, God can work it out. Grace is our advantage. Grace is our thing. So may we hope that God can make everybody stand. Well, that's our story for this week. Let's pray and we'll wrap this up. Thank you, Lord, for your truth, the real reality we know that is in your word and your, your truth from which we can learn and we can learn to see other people, to have our regard for other people as you do. 
So may we know, may everyone listening know they are justified and their justification is grounded in Jesus. Their salvation is based on his work and his resurrection, his life and your grace. And by simple faith and trust in that, we have eternal life that can never be lost. Thanks for the simplicity of being, uh, we can be persuaded and trust him. May we just be persuaded and put our full confidence in Christ that we can leave the parable like the tax collector justified before you and may you teach us not to condemn but instead to love as you have loved us and may that be a big how we see people and compel us even how we interact thank you father for these truths we pray now in jesus name amen thank you for listening again and always remember where the spirit of god is there is always hope.